Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. So I want to begin today with a request of you, my listeners. I bring rabbis on and Torah scholars to answer questions for me, things I'm struggling with, things I need to learn more about. But it's our podcast. So I want to request that if there's a topic that you want to learn about, then email me at president at torchweb.org. Or you may have a follow-up question for one of the rabbis after an episode. Feel free to send those to me and I'll forward it to the rabbis. We can both continue to learn with each other when the episode is over. So today what I want to talk about is Shalom Bayit. Now I did a lecture early on on this subject. And the reason I, I wanted to do that lecture back then was because I had read Rabbi Arusha's book, The Garden of Peace, several times over. And I knew the best way to really integrate it and know it and live it is to teach it. So I taught these these very powerful concepts from his book. And what I learned from reading the book is that, and many other sources as well, is that Shalom Bayit is by far the most important mitzvah. Matter of fact, if I were to do every mitzvah perfectly, give sadaka, follow all the mitzvot, but I failed in this area of Shalom Bayit, then when I die, I will have totally disappointed God. It's almost like all the other mitzvot are there to fuel in and feed into this one very important mitzvah. But what I found is that while I still theoretically understand the concepts as far as actually executing on them on a day-to-day basis is something I need quite a bit of work with. In my professional life, I teach financial professionals in the area of behavioral finance. And what I'm always trying to do is read the theories but look for concrete, actual items and take those theories and make them applied. And that's sort of what I want to do now on this topic. You can sort of think of the first one as theoretical. This is like the applied Shalom Bayit. I'm very fortunate in my marriage because while my wife and I do have what I call disagreements, what she may call arguments, they do come up, but we don't say mad at each other too long. I, I know that if we do have an argument and we're upset with each other, I can't just leave and come back to my office and work because I can't function. I know what's happening. You know, the the, the plug that's tied into the Almighty, that my source of vitality, it's gone. Because when a spouses are quarreling with, with each other, the divine presence doesn't want any part to do with it. It just leaves. And I just feel totally sapped out of any of my vitality, any of my energy. And I have to rush back and make things right with my wife in order to have that that source of energy and flow enter back into me. And we've talked about several things in the last few weeks. One, we spoke with Rabbi Busco when he was talking about Shavuos, and he used the analogy that when, just like with the giving of the Torah, the time in the wilderness when we had all our needs met, and he made it very experiential and then pulled it away and told us to now make it our own, the same thing happens in a relationship. We, We meet our spouse for the first time. It's exciting. There's passion. And then he only made that to be temporary and then go away so that we could build it back and earn that for ourselves. And then last week, I had Rabbi Cohen on to talk about 
the Kabbalah of Intimacy, part one. Part two, God willing, will be recorded this Friday. And he talked about the home is like a temple with the Holy Holies being in the bedroom. So obviously, this is a very important subject that I am determined to get good at. But it's not something I've succeeded so far with on a day-to-day basis. One of the things I've learned is that while I know that the most important thing for a man to provide to his wife is honor and make her first feel like first place, where I fail with that in many areas, one of them is in the communication. I know like several years ago, as I was talking with my wife, I could tell the conversation was leading into a disagreement. And I was getting frustrated because the conversation seemed to address a topic and then move on. And then we would circle back around to that very same topic. And I felt like I was caught in some deja vu loop. And I, I came up with this brilliant idea. And I very excitedly told my wife, I said, Shauna, this is totally my fault because the same thing happens to me when I study Talmud. So I know how to make this work perfectly going forward. What we do is this, and it's the very reason I got a marker board in my office. When I'm studying Talmud and I get lost in it, I write out on the marker board the decision tree of the rabbi's discourse back and forth. That way I can keep track of the dialogue. So what I suggest we do is we go into my office and we start this conversation over and I'll use the marker board to track the decision tree around this conversation. It'll be so beautiful because then I'll immediately be able to come to a conclusion and understand exactly what you're trying to convey to me and what the conclusion is. And while I was so excited about this uh, idea, when I saw her expression, she was not excited about it. Matter of fact, she looked very upset with my proposal. So I came back to her with a different idea. And I said, look, I need help in learning how to communicate better. So what I propose is the following. Why don't we go see a marriage counselor and see if she can help me with my communication skills? And she agreed. So we go to this, this marriage counselor And what the therapist has us do is she gives us these index cards with all these emotions listed on it. And then she told us to go back to a previous discussion that ended up in a disagreement and point out which emotions we were feeling in that moment. So first Shauna goes and she points out four or five different emotions that she was feeling in that moment. And then it was my turn. So we talked about what what occurred and I looked at the index card and went through each item and I got to the word frustrated. And I said that, that's the one. I felt frustrated. And the therapist and Shauna said, okay. And we came back a week later and went through the same exercise. Shauna had her turn. She pointed out four or five, six different emotions. I get to it at that point. And once again, all I can come up with is frustrated. And the therapist said, surely you have other emotions that you experience. And I said, yes. I do. I have an amazing life. So I am happy all the time. But every now and then I get frustrated when I'm dealing with a situation I don't know how to resolve. And she said, well, let's help you find other emotions that you can attach to and, and, and learn to explain. So I, we began this exercise where we would go through this every week. And at home, I was given a homework assignment to not to express myself with emotions, but not use the word frustrated. And we went on with this week after week. And I would sit there just thinking of another emotion. I couldn't get anywhere with it. And I was getting frustrated because I couldn't find another word other than frustrated. And I was, especially the idea that I knew if I had spent that much energy and time trying to learn Mandarin Chinese, I would have been conversational by this point. But yeah, I was continually failing. And then finally, my wife, Shauna, said, enough, no more. She, and she gave me a big hug and said, you know what? You are emotionally binary and I'm okay with that. But What's most important to me, what means so much to me is that you just tried so hard. You did all this for me. So I 
don't want you to try to do this anymore. I know you can't talk like that and we don't need to go to therapy anymore. And then I said back to her, do you know how this makes me feel happy? And what I learned from that moment was, is that is back where I learned from that book I'd read 10 years earlier is about making the wife feel like first place. And that's when I went back and read that book several times and then ended up teaching in that class. But I still struggle because I'm so caught up with work, with constantly thinking about how to solve problems with all the different initiatives we have going on. I'm constantly thinking about how I can help Rabbi Ari with Torch. And I know sometimes it makes her feel like I'm not making her first place. So I decided I need to get someone on here, a couple, an amazing couple that could help me in this area. If they can help me, they can help out anyone. So I was first thinking who would be the perfect couple to bring on for this. And I thought Rabbi Ari Wolby and his wife, the Rebetzin Zahava. But then I thought, I don't know if they would be the right people because Rabbi Ari is so sweet. He's like an angel. He, he's not really like the rest of us guys that life has to deal with. So I started thinking a little more. And then finally I decided, you know what? I have a new theory. Maybe the reason the great Rabbi Ari is great is because of Zahava. So maybe they are the absolute perfect couple to help me and teach me applied Shalom Bayit skills. So welcome Rabbi Ari and the Rebetzin Zahava. I'm so thankful that you're here to help me in this matter. Hi. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm eager to learn. I have a pad of paper and a pen. Why don't we start off with this idea of making the wife know that she is first place? Because I know Rabbi Ari, not only are you busy with Torch, teaching Torch, running the organization, but you're now past your exam and you're part of Hadzala. And so you're very busy. You have seven kids. First, why don't you tell me from your perspective what you do to consciously make Zahava know she is first place. And then I want to hear from Zahava's perspective what she wants, what, what, how, we, how we go about doing that when we live these busy lives. So the first thing is you're making a wild assumption that I actually fulfill that and make Zahava feel number one. That is my goal and that is my intention every day. I think that I fall short of that and don't necessarily live up to that every day. I try to and I aspire for perfection in that area, but no question that I feel that that is my responsibility. Life gets busy and balance is the most important function of Judaism. Every area of Judaism requires balance. That doesn't change when we get to work and it doesn't change when we get home. It doesn't change in any other area of Judaism. We always need to have balance. So if a person is too busy with work, it's not good. If a person is too busy only being home, that's not either good. Particularly, I remember when we were newlywed, about a year or two, and I was home in the summer because I was teaching in yeshiva that ended in, in it was when we were living in Israel. And in about mid-May, yeshiva ended, and it didn't reopen again till September. So I had the rest of the month of May, June, July, August, and then September. And I remember somewhere in the middle of that, those months of the summer months, things were, we, we were facing a little bit of a, of a struggle at home. And I went to my rabbi and I said, can you please give me some guidance? Something is wrong because I, I love my wife so much. I believe she loves me so much and we get along so well, but just the past few weeks have been just a disaster. See, so he says, tell me about your day. So I told him, I said, you know, in the morning I'm not teaching in yeshiva and I'm, and I'm home. So I'm, I'm working on a few projects. He says, wait one second, you're home in the morning. I said, yeah. He says, you're trespassing. You have no business being there. This is her domain. I said, but I'm, I'm locking myself up in the office. He said, it doesn't make a difference. Go work from the shul next door. Go find another place you can work. You're 
trespassing in her domain. She needs her space. And I tried to follow his ruling to, to guide me that even in a marriage, you need to have space. There needs to be balance there as well. So while it's very important to ensure that a wife feels like she is first place and second place and third place in every man's life, in her husband's life, it is critically important to make sure that there's balance in that as well. A wife needs to have room to breathe. A husband needs to have room to breathe. I know this is going in the opposite direction almost, but I, I think it's important to just note right on the onset that there needs to be a balance in a relationship. And Zahava, tell us from a woman's perspective, what do men need to do to make their, their wives feel like they are first place? I think what women want is that the times that they are together, they really are together. Meaning, she wants to know that she is his number one all the time. But reality, he goes to work and has a life and does other things and has other responsibilities. I don't think any woman in her right mind expects him to just be taking care of her and thinking about her 24-7. As long as he makes spending time with her a priority, calls during the day, checks in on her, sends her a text message at some point during the day, hey, how are you doing? Just thinking about you. How's your day going? So that she knows that he's thinking about her, even if he's busy, just a quick text message, that's it. And then later when he's home, be home. When you are home, when you are there, forget everything else. Obviously things come up, but to try as much as possible, especially if you are spending time together, that that time is your time, that he's not on his phone or doing something else or looking at a computer. She wants to feel that he's really there. My grandfather would say that before a husband comes home after a hard day's work, you have to stop for a minute and understand what's going on on the other side of the door. You can have children who have been bouncing off the walls for the past two, three hours before you got there. And you come home, you're starving. All you want to do is eat, watch the news or whatever it is that you, you know, watch the football game. And you need to understand what's going on on the other side of the door. Say, just stop, take a deep breath and know that the next 20 minutes don't belong to you. They belong only to your wife. And I think it's such a fundamental principle that when we walk into the home, put the phone, leave it in the car, put it aside and just give the full undivided attention to your spouse. That makes sense. Now, I know you guys have been in the same situation I always live my life in, which is that my home is my office. This is where I am, except when I used to have to travel. And since the quarantine, you've been in the same situation. You've been working right from the office where you're talking right now. And it's hard to have that. It creates a challenge because there's no clear delineation between now I'm at work, now I'm at home. So since you guys have sort of been experiencing that, how have you adapted to this environment that we've lived in since March? Well, I think for us, we're used to having our lives and our work and everything be one big, beautiful mess. We, we work together and that doesn't work for all couples. I have to say that. I don't think it's healthy for all couples, but it works out. But I think that it is important to create. I think that it is very important for a husband and wife to give each other the space they need, even in this circumstance. So if the husband has some deadlines and work and things he needs to take care of, so the wife can give him the space he needs and the time he needs to take care of that. I think most women, if they feel like they get what they need from their husbands, the emotional support, the time, the shoulder to lean on, whatever it is that they need, 
if they get that, then they're able to let their husband do what he needs to do. If she doesn't feel like she's getting what she needs from him, even if he's home and trying to get things done, she's constantly going to be on his case because he's not stepping up to the plate. But if he takes care of her and gives her what she needs and helps out in the home or with the kids or whatever needs to be taken care of, bills or whatever it is, then she's able to step back and say, you know, do what you need to do. And the same for the other way. If he feels he's taken care of, I think he's happy to give her her space when she needs it as well. That makes sense. But can you can you add some color into the emotional support and the other things? What is What does that look like? Use terms that sometimes dense guys like me need more definable action items. Like explain to me how that that looks played out. Every woman's different, really. There's all the classic men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and that is important. And there are stereotypes of men and women, and most of them are true. I think there are men need certain things, women have certain things that they that they need in their relationship. I think the most important thing that both sides want, the bottom line, is respect. Communication is very, very important, giving time, giving space, but respect is very, very important. And a lot of people fall short of that. And a wife can prepare a gourmet nice dinner for her husband and just throw it on the table and be like, enjoy your meal and just walk off and go sit on her phone scrolling through Instagram. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want that nice meal. So a wife could feel like, oh, I'm such a great wife. I just prepared him such a nice meal. He doesn't want that passive aggressive. Here's your meal now. Like, where have you been all day? What have you been doing? I've been busy with the kids all day. Yeah, what have you done? And I think that's a terrible way to communicate. I think most husbands would rather a simpler meal and for the wife to sit down with with him and be there and listen to his day and hear what he's up to and what's going on and what he did that day. I want to step back a little bit, but I want to share with you, I believe that man was created for marriage. Okay, actually women were created for marriage. Man was created to make marriage work. Marriage is a workshop in character development. I believe that every man and every woman who are put together in marriage, we call this a word bashert, and people think bashert means that it is uh, predestined. And it's not predestined in advance, it's predestined because you got married to one another. Now you're predestined to work together on making this a, a beautiful, harmonious relationship. I, I firmly believe this. I really believe that my wife is the perfect woman for me. When she points out a flaw that I have... It is so spot on. It is the exact piece that I need now to perfect this specific trait. And Hashem sends her as a perfect angel to get me to be a better man at this time on this specific area that I need improvement. So there are many guys who say, oh, I just need to get out, okay? She's driving me crazy. I have many friends who talk like that and they say, oh, my wife is going to kill me, things like that. You know, it's like, that's not what a marriage should be. A marriage shouldn't be where she's the cop, you know, policing her husband. A marriage should be where there is an understanding that the man needs to improve and become a better person. And the wife is there. Ezer Kenegdo, the Torah tells us, Eve was created as a helper opposite Adam. Every man's wife is an Eve. She's there to help him become perfect. I have a, a friend of mine who I met at a, on a uh, conference. We were at a conference in, in Florida. And I asked him how things going. He had recently been divorced. And he told me he was very worried. 
because he read an article in the New York Times that said that they did a study on thousands and thousands of divorced couples who got remarried to someone else, and they found that 99% of the people had the exact same problems in the second marriage as they had in the first marriage. With half as much money. <laughs> right. So, And he told me he was so worried. He says, I can't, I can't have the same problems I had. I said, you know what the, what the reason why they have the same problems is because they didn't change. You're still the same you. So therefore, Hashem will send you the same exact fix to your problem. It's not going to change. If, and that's what marriage is. Marriage is a workshop in character development. And if you don't change, the problems aren't going to change. So that's point number one. Point number two, Rabbi Dessler says there are two types of people. There are givers and there are takers. In marriage, a marriage can only succeed if the couple is focused on being givers. If your focus is on being takers, the happiness, he says, is distant from you. Because you'll be quetching about what you don't have, and you'll be quetching about what your friend has, and you'll be quetching about what you haven't taken. If a couple's focus is on how they can be givers, their happiness is unlimited. And he's, he points out that he says by every chuppah that he would be part of, and they'd ask him to speak. He says, right now you want to give each other the world. He says, if that ever changes and you start thinking about what you can take out of the relationship, not what you can give, happiness is already beyond you. So I think every relationship needs to focus on how, and it doesn't expire after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. The more a couple can focus on giving one another is the more they will be happy. I agree. I think the mindset has to be in a committed relationship, what can I do for you, not what can you do for me? It is very important. And I think like Ari was mentioning about Adam and Eve, under the chuppah, we give them a blessing that they should be like, they should have a marriage like Adam and Eve. So why why them? Why not Yaakov and Rachel? Yaakov loved Rachel so much. Like, why don't we talk about that? Or Abraham and Sarah or any anyone. And I think that A, in in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were together there was 100% clarity that this person is for me. There was no question, you know, maybe there's another woman out there who'd take better care of me. Or maybe some other husband would treat me better or talk nicer to me. It's so important for couples to stop comparing themselves to other people. It's so important to for a wife not to say, well, my father used to do blah, blah for my mother. Or my friend's husband does this and this and this for her. It's, it's one of the most dangerous things that a couple could do in their marriage is to compare themselves, their relationship, to anyone else's relationship. Every relationship is unique. Every circumstance, every husband's flaws, the wife's flaws, the way they treat each other, everything that goes into that relationship is unique. There are no two marriages. There are no two relationships that are the same. So you can't compare. So the same way Adam and Eve had that 100% clarity and they weren't looking what else is out there and what other people were doing for their spouses, they were looking at each other and just taking care of each other without other distractions. Adam knew that Eve was the only one. Eve knew Adam was the only one. And that's what we need to bring that idea to our marriage. Right. The second part of that is that there was no one else. There was literally no one else. And there was no one else to let into their marriage. So a lot of people, besides comparing, they start talking about their marriage with other people. That's also really dangerous, and that could be 
be a big problem for other people, either what you say to other people or what you see from other people. The whole world of social media today and people, happy birthday to the most amazing, wonderful, special, handsome, gorgeous, fit, blah, 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 husband in the world. You're the most amazing person, you this, you that, you, you know, and going on and on and on and saying all this like gushing praise. I hope she says that to him in person. But a lot of times you see these things on Facebook or whatever social media, right? And it shows a relationship and you're like, wow, they, they must be really in love. They, they have such a beautiful, perfect relationship. And you have no idea what's going on. And a lot of times when people are trying to show something, it's not necessarily the reality of what's really going on in their marriage. So Adam and Eve had, had this kind of like bubble that they lived in. And you want to have that bubble that your marriage, no one else is allowed in. You create this space that it's just the two of you and no one else comes in and no one goes out and you have this, you work on it. That's your focus is just making your own reality, your own little world as perfect as it can be. So if you are having a challenge with your spouse, the one to work out that challenge with is your spouse, not a friend or a parent or or, or anyone else. Is that what you're saying? It's not to discourage people from getting help if they need to go to marriage counseling, if they need to go for therapy. That's not to, to discourage people to go and seek help because sometimes there are issues that are beyond what the husband or wife can identify on their own. Sometimes we need outside help. We all have blind spots. You know, on the on the newer cars, they have blind spot indicators on the mirror to let you know there's a blind spot. That's our therapist sometimes shining that light on what could be in our blind spot. But I want to just add to what Zahava said is that in one of the things that we say in marriage is in via geffen be in via geffen, one grapevine with another grapevine. It really is a remarkable comparison. We're trying to say a husband and a wife are two different vines that come together and become a grapevine. If you look at a grapevine, the way the, 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 the vines grow is they intertwine and become one. You can't separate them. You try to pull them apart. You can't separate them. And what we bless every bride and groom is that they should become a unique new vine, meaning he leaves his parents, she leaves her parents, and now you start a new world together. You create a whole new reality, a whole new existence, which is this couple as individuals, you're starting a whole fresh new world. And that's, I believe, the specialty of marriage is to make a unique new reality, which is just the husband, just the wife, together we work through our issues. Together we recognize the short, the shortcomings. Together we work on perfecting man. I just want to add one more point is that Jacob had a dream and he had a ladder in that dream. And I heard a great commentary that Jacob was on the bottom of that ladder. Why was he at the bottom of the ladder? Because men, males, are born at the bottom of the ladder. Women are born at the top of the ladder. And the job of every woman is to help her husband get up to the top of that ladder without her falling down. A woman becoming a street fighter is not doesn't represent the woman. She needs to stay pristine. She's all the way up at the top of the ladder. And she needs to help him come up that ladder. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, my parents had this perfect marriage. They were married for 50 years and everything was perfect. And they... And I hope they were, and many couples are that lucky, but most couples, even those perfect marriages, especially the perfect marriages, have their struggles. They all do. 
it's not like a puzzle piece, right, that fit perfectly together. It's more like two like very jagged edges that are coming together and you have to fit those pieces in and it's going to take time to fit those two together. It's not simple. But that's the beauty of a marriage. That's when it becomes great. A marriage becomes great when you work on those things, on those struggles that are between the two of you. And like Arya was saying, for the wife to help the husband reach his potential and for the husband to bring out the potential of his wife. And when you work on it, that's when it's better. That's when it's a great marriage. What you just said is very profound. I want to make sure I understand this correctly, but it sounds like what you are saying, Zahava, and you, Rabbi Ari, is that the way marriage is supposed to be, if done correctly, is there are going to be points of friction. And it's through working through those is what brings out the real closeness and the magic to the relationship. So this idea that people fall in love and go off into the sunset and there's never a disagreement. There's never moments where they're challenged with one another, that that's not real. And that's really not what marriage is supposed to be about. It sounds like those challenges are are part of the magic of getting through those. And that what brings the marriage closer and makes it better. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. You know, I want to just add, you know, I once fractured my shoulder and a few years later, I spoke to a doctor and he, he asked me, he says, tell me, how is that shoulder that you fractured? He says, did you notice if that shoulder is stronger than the other shoulder? I said, why? He says, because the body is so amazing that when it breaks, the healing mechanism is that the body sends more resources to help heal it. And the bone actually becomes stronger after it broke. When it heals, it actually becomes stronger than it was originally so that it shouldn't break again. That's what I believe exactly the mechanism of having a disagreement in a marriage. You have a disagreement in a marriage, it's a fracture. Guess what? When you're able to properly get over it and and work it out, you make the relationship much stronger than it was before. And many people are afraid, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do? We got into a fight, we got into an argument. Guess what? Working through it will only make you a much stronger couple. You're able to weather more storms. My rabbi used to say that guys get engaged and they're all in cloud nine and then they get married and it's like, wow, it's like great. He says, and then one day they show up in yeshiva and they're all depressed. So the rabbi would go over to them and says, you had your first fight, didn't you? He says, yeah. He says, now you can say mazel tov. Now you're married. There's a very big difference between a fight and a disagreement. As you said in the beginning of your podcast, when you first started, I think that that's a very important point because fighting isn't what I'm, we're talking about here. Fighting hopefully doesn't need to happen in a marriage. Disagreeing and conflict and differences of opinion and all those other nicer ways of saying misunderstandings, right, are something that should happen and help your marriage. But they have to be done in a respectful, loving manner so you can totally disagree. But you can sit down, take a breath, and calmly listen to them. And you might be wrong. They might be wrong. That's not the point. Work it out. Talk it through. Find a way to meet in the middle. Or sometimes you have to also say, you know what? She's right. Or he's right. And I am way off. And be ready to swallow your pride and not... It shouldn't be about who's right, who's wrong, who wins. A real relationship, a real marriage should be about finding what's right and coming, figuring things out together. 
on the other person not to rub it in the other one's face also is like, see, I told you, or to do it respectfully and nicely and just to keep maintaining the same level of respect and love. When we were newlyweds, so we had many different couples. We'd go for dinner together and we'd, we'd, we'd hang out with many friends who are of uh, similar age, similar circumstances, with uh, no children, with one child, two children, you know, it was like, and I remember that we noticed that there were many of our friends, they would tease each other, the husband and wife would tease each other, or the wife or the husband would say something embarrassing about their husband, thinking it's all cutesy, and, you know, and we made a very conscious decision that the respect and honor that we want to display for one another is not a place for for teasing each other publicly to get, you know, to score points with our friends. Like, oh, look, it's very, very important to have that proper respect and that value for our spouse and not to make jokes on their account, uh, not to mock them, even if you're not in front of them. Uh, Oh, you think your wife is difficult, right? And I I hear that we all hear these conversations among men. I'm very proud that I'm not one of those who says anything derogatory about my wife. I think the highest... Of, of my wife in the world and think she's the most incredible human being. And even if I do have a challenge, it's not for public display. It doesn't need to become a conversation among friends. It doesn't need to be a place of disrespect for her. And it doesn't need to be something where if she was in front of those people, she'd be embarrassed. Again, you have to consider the relationship you have with your spouse as you know, identical to the relationship we're supposed to have with God. And we're not supposed to say God's name in vain. We're not supposed to, uh, you know, blaspheme and say derogatory things against God. I believe that the relationship we have with our spouse needs to emulate a similar respect and dignity. I think men and women also speak totally different languages, and we need to learn how to understand and translate those languages. You know, there's a, a great video out there, it's not about the nail, and where this woman has a nail in her head. And her husband says, you know, she, she keeps on complaining that she has a terrible headache. <laughs> and, you know, and he says, you know, I can just pull out the nail. She says, it's not about the nail. Right? I just want you to understand me. And that, the truth is, is that men miss this, miss this so much because we try to be logical and we try to be solution-oriented where all our spouse or our wife needs is for us to just be there and understand her. Don't try to be Mr. Fix-It. Don't try to solutionize. Just be there with her. Empathize. Feel her situation. Get into her frame of mind, into her emotion. Get into her situation with her. And there's nothing more empowering to a relationship than a woman who feels that her husband just gets her. I did read recently that book with Shauna on, on Shabbos, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And it did open my eyes to a lot that when a woman just wants to vent and share her feelings that what she is actually doing is reconciling in her mind the emotions to what she's experiencing. And so our role is just to be quiet and not say anything, which is great. I can do that job perfectly. You see, the world we're living in today is a world where everything is custom. You can have your perfect uh, frappuccino with two pumps of cinnamon and three pumps of caramel and two pumps of chocolate, and you have it made exactly at the temperature that you like pre-ordered, waiting for you when you arrive at the window at, at Starbucks. People today don't want to work hard. People today don't, un, don't understand that failure is when you give up. Failure is not when you don't succeed in getting what you want. Failure is when you give up. And I believe that the world we're living in today is really 
a world which is not understanding that to have bliss in marriage is to work hard. We're not accustomed to working hard in almost any area. Everything is drive-through, easy, pickup, curbside, ready to go. And marriage isn't that. Marriage is a lot of hard work. And if we don't accept that reality, you will have a world where we have such a high divorce rate. We have an unbelievable, there are counties in California that have over 100% divorce rate because everyone is divorced more than once. And the, the reason is because people don't want to work Marriage is about working hard. And it is, I don't know anybody who's walked into a marriage and had bliss day one forever. There are going to be bumps. I think when you know that God is the matchmaker, he is the one that connects every spouse with each other. Once that is known, I tell Shauna that all the time, hey, Hashem put me with you, so you have no choice but to be with me. So I think that, that also creates it more of a dedication to, to working towards it. That's correct. And you know something? It's the Talmud in Sota in the first page, 2A is the first page of Tractate Sota, where it says that. It says that what is God busy doing right now? He's Mizavik Zivugim. He's bringing couples together. Now, think of all of the things that needed to go right for you to meet Shona, all the things that needed to go right for me to meet Sahava, and every single person who met their special spouse. Uh, what needed to go right in their world from birth, all of the places you needed to move to, the people you met, the parties you went to, the schools you were in, all of those different interactions that got you to the exact point to get you to be with your spouse, to meet them and to hopefully get married to them. All of that so that you have your special relationship to get you to a point of your perfection. It's really remarkable when we think about it. I know one area that becomes challenging for couples is with raising kids. And I know that the idea is always to be united on parenting. But I know sometimes there can be a disconnect on how to handle a parenting situation. I don't know if, if that's something that's come up with you and how you go about to have cohesiveness and unity in the, the parenting of your children. I think overall, the two of us agree on parenting styles, on the fundamentals of it. But obviously, we both have different approaches or different techniques sometimes. I think what's important for couples to know is not to wait until their child is a teenager to start thinking, what's our parenting ideals? Preparing for parenting needs to start when the kid's newborn or even before they have the baby. They need to start thinking and talking about these things early on so that they can come to a mutual understanding of what their ideas are anything that could come up. You don't know the specifics of what are what's going to happen when you're you're not thinking. Oh, you have a two year old who just bit another kid in school. Now, how do you handle that? You have to come up with your basics, your principles earlier on, and have a vision of the way you want to raise your children. And then when specifics come up, then you're able to handle them together. Most importantly, if there is disagreement on where how to handle a specific situation you want to have that discussion privately you don't want to come across to the kid with different mixed messages you want to have a united front so you discuss that separately away from the children and then together you can you see a lot of times you know a child like oh i'll ask mom for this or i'll ask dad for this and and some of that's normal my kids know they want Candy, it, I'm your girl. They know what to ask me or what to ask Arya for in specific situations. 
I think it's very dangerous for a couple to give the kids different parenting advice. And then it's very confusing for the child. We're constantly monitoring the relationship with our children to see what it is that they need. And that helps also build our relationship with one another so that, you know, we feel like we're, we're in this as a team. We're not just, you know, individual parents trying to navigate. We're a team working together as a unit. As Ari is saying, every kid is unique. So we, you can't have different, totally different parenting styles for all your children. Otherwise, they're going to call you out on that, and that's not fair. But each kid might need a little bit something different, and you have to realize we might need to loosen up on certain things with this specific kid because otherwise it's just it might be counterproductive to you know force a child to do something. And also we have to make sure that we're doing what's best for the child not what's best for us. Most importantly is that the couple's united in front of the child. And sometimes I'm not 100% comfortable with uh, something that we decide, and Ari might not, but we have to come to something that we both agree. And if we're not sure, if you really aren't sure, then it's wise to ask advice from a professional, child psychologist, a rabbi, a teacher, a friend, somebody who you trust if you if you really are struggling. Wonderful. Awesome. So you've given some uh, amazing advice. One, to sort of recap on what I've learned from both of you is that if each spouse comes into the marriage with the idea of giving, if all I focus on is is giving to Shauna and meeting her needs, then the amount of time I need to, if I need to allocate time to work, that's okay because her needs have been met and vice versa. And it also sounds like the next time we have one of those disagreements that we should get extremely excited because it means that our marriage is about to be increased and magnified, and it's an opportunity for growth in our marriage. In Jewish marriage, the man gives the wife a ketubah. Where's the wife's ketubah to the husband? There's no ketubah that a wife gives to the husband because the woman is naturally a giver. The man needs to be forced to give. He needs to sign a document saying, yes, I am committing myself to give all of her needs to her. She's going to reciprocate tenfold. But if a man doesn't obligate himself, he's not going to do it. It, it, It's such an incredible thing that we obligate a man through the ketubah that he's going to give his wife to guarantee and to write and give it publicly that he is taking care of her. He's committing himself to taking care of her. It's, it's, It's just an amazing thing. What does he get back in return? No document, no guarantee, nothing. Because that's her natural state. I think if a woman feels that she has her needs taken care of, but not in a selfish way and not to be over demanding and unrealistic of her husband is there for, then she'll, like I said, women want to give, women want to take care of their husband, but sometimes they're insecure or they feel like, does he actually love me? Or if he cared about me, he would this and that. And that's not really what the husband's thinking, but women start getting into their own head sometimes and spinning these tales. And I think that as long as she's reassured that he's there for her and taking care of her and loves her unconditionally and not that, okay, I'm here for you. I I have five minutes, go. I'm listening to you. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, check, done. My rabbi said, my friend said, my teacher said, someone said, I have to listen to you. Okay, are we good? Can I go now? Obviously not like that. That's not going to work. Sincerity of the gesture of the action. The action and the thoughts behind it and the way it's done are very, very important because if he's just sitting there 
and listening and scrolling through his phone while you're talking. And he's like, yeah, I'm listening. I'm here. I'm listening. Yeah. What? Say say it. You know, she sees right through that. She's, that's not enough. That's not what she needs. It comes across whether he says it or not. It's very obvious. So it's, it's not forcing yourself to be there to listen to her, but it's making sure she feels you're really there. You're really listening. You really care. And that feeling will come across if if it's genuine. It will come across and she'll feel she has what she needs and she will make sure to take care of you. Also, that's also important. Like in a marriage, it's not like a point system or keeping track of I took out the garbage, so you should this or I did this, so you should that or that's very, very important because once you start keeping track and feeling you did this, so you're entitled to this, that's not how it works. That's that's not a marriage. You know, my rabbi would say that young men would come to him to complain. I don't know what she wants from me. She's upset because we went uh, drape shopping when they were engaged. And you don't care about me. This she would say. say he would say, you know something? She said she wanted to go buy pillowcases, you know, all of linen and, uh, you know, what you're going to have in the house, all the different decorations for the house. And he couldn't really care much about it. But what can he do? He's newly engaged. He's going to go. And he says, you don't understand. Your bride, your wife, she's got very good antennas. She can tell when you're not interested. She says, but what do I do? I'm just not interested. I couldn't care if it's this shade of green or that shade of green or that. You know, I don't care. He says, well, your only solution is to go and care, right? If it's important to her, make it important to you. I think, though, it's important for the wife to not have unrealistic expectations of the husband. He doesn't care about those drapes and he doesn't need to care. If it's important to you that he comes along just for the moral support, then then that's fine. But don't expect him to have this deep emotional connection to what color your drapes or linen are, because that's not what he cares about. So so it's important for the woman also not to demand or expect things that are not fair for her to expect. So even if he doesn't care about the drapes, but he can say, you know, I love that you're putting in so much effort to make our bedroom look nice, you know, or focus on what he does care about or and show her that he values what she is doing and not that that's silly, that's stupid, I don't care about it, doesn't matter. It should matter. It's just not my thing. So you do it. I trust you. I, I value if you want me to come along, I'm happy to come and I'm here for you for whatever you need. No, so you're saying that each spouse doesn't have to have a a total interest in what the other spouse has, but they can still value what the other spouse is doing and the way they're contributing to the, the marriage. Right. And that's with everything. I mean, we both, we have very different likes. You don't have to have the same likes. You don't, you shouldn't. Every marriage is unique. And what might be right for Zahav and I may be totally wrong for someone else. That's the reality of marriage. Marriage is very unique to each individual relationship. I feel that it's, extremely important for a man to make an emphasis on a regular basis to show his wife how much she means to him. And that's at the very minimum. I want to give everyone just a little tip here. There's something you can do every single week, not to make it a just a routine every week. This is what I do. When I heard from one of my fellow uh, graduates from the Jerusalem Kolel by Rabbi Berkowitz, that they said they once found him in the flower shop before Shabbos. And for a half hour, he was picking out the exact, he wanted this exact flower and that exact flower and that exact flower. He was taking his time because this is his representation of his love to his wife. And if this is what's important to her, 
So this is an expression of that love and to take the time to identifying, you know, this one is so beautiful. This represents an element of the love that I have for you. And this little flower. And the idea is it's not only with flowers. It could be with buying her favorite sweet, her chocolate that she likes, or picking up the Chinese, kosher Chinese food that she likes. Something making the relationship special, not just, oh, it's our anniversary, I better remember and and do something special, but really to make every day, every week, a special time in the relationship. And it's an investment that will not come back with short returns. It will be incredible, the interest on those efforts that are made. You're thinking about your wife, let her know that you're thinking about her. And I think the same with the wife. She's, she's thinking about her husband. You know, it can just be like Sahava said earlier, just a little text message that can really make a relationship so great and so special. The way that a Jewish marriage is set up with different times in the woman's cycle, that their their relationship has different guidelines. There are times when touching is off the table. When physical, the physical contact is is off. Now, it's an amazing, amazing thing because there's a, there's a lot to a lot of merit to this. There's a lot of uh, value that it brings to a marriage, and a lot of people say, "Oh my gosh, that sounds nuts. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Why can't I give my wife a hug? Or why can't I pass him something?" Or during this time, so I think when I first heard it, when I was before I got married, I was like, "Seriously." And you don't understand or appreciate it until you do it. Because if you ask any couple who has been married 10 years, 15 years, and ask them honestly, is the attraction and level of excitement that you have for your spouse the same as when you first met? I challenge you to find anyone who's going to say yes, honestly. However, the way that the Torah sets up a Jewish mar- a marriage is not for rules and to restrict you. It's the most amazing, amazing system. And when you have times that the physical part of the relationship is off the table, then you can focus on other parts of your marriage. You can focus on friendship. You can focus on just spending time together and talking about certain things. The physical part of the relationship is not an option. Then you're focused on different things. And then when you are back together, when you are allowed to touch, when you are allowed to kiss, when you are allowed to hug, there's so much more, it's so much more special. If you give your wife a kiss on the way out to work every single day for 40 years and say, bye, love you, it's very nice. And the first 10, 20, 100, 1,000 times, oh, so sweet, right? But if it becomes this routine, like every day on the way out, bye, love you, then it kind of loses the effect. When there's times that you're not allowed to touch, when there's times that you're not allowed to give that little kiss, embrace, whatever it is, then when you can, it's so much more exciting. It's so much more special. And you don't take it for granted. That little touch, the little anything is so exciting because when you can, then it just reinvigorates the relationship. Once I learned about the laws of Anita around the the separation, it made so much sense because we're by nature, we are going to take things for granted. And that helps keeps us everything fresh and keeps the gratitude of all the different elements and aspects of the marriage intact and invigorated. I think you guys shared a lot here because you're right. Everything is nuanced and different for each relationship. However, there are some universal truths that you share that we can all apply to making our marriages stronger and better and 
and making ourselves along the way better individuals as well. So Rabbi Ari and Zahava, thank you so much for coming on. You shared some amazing ideas and I know myself and the audience will benefit greatly from them. Thank you so much, Dan, for the opportunity. It's a, a huge privilege to sit beside my wife and, and do a, uh, a podcast uh, with you. So thank you for this uh, tremendous privilege. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.